back to our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your summer host, Emily Mullen, editor of Leaps.org, and today we're talking about the Delta variant, breakthrough infections, and the lab leak theory. I'm honored that my guest today is Dr. Gigi Granville, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Granville is an immunologist by training. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So we've been hearing a lot about the Delta variant recently. And to, to start off, I just wanted to ask you a very general question so that our listeners are all on the same page. What exactly do scientists mean when they use the term variant? One of the things that people should know is that if this pandemic happened a few years ago, we wouldn't have any idea about these variants. Um, they would have been published in a, in a scientific journal article like five years from now. And so we are able to attract these variants because of the advances of biotechnology. And so we are much more on top of how the virus is evolving. So all these variants, um, all of these mutations that are occurring in, in the virus as it infects new people are, are causing, are developing into these variants, which um, you know, we we now we are calling by all the Greek letter names and we're probably going to go through the alphabet. So it's um, it's something that people should just realize that, you know, it's it's just the way that viruses work. They evolve. And so, um, you know, variants are just going to emerge and we're just going to have to deal with them. Well, my next question was going to ask, why do variants uh, emerge in the first place and why has this Delta variant emerged. Right. So every time a virus infects somebody, it makes um, lots and lots of copies of itself. And uh, there, and sometimes there are um, mistakes that are made. And sometimes those mistakes end up being really bad for the virus and it's unable to produce more variants so that it can, you know, be in line for infecting somebody else. And sometimes those mutations end up being, you know, are pretty good for the virus. And, um, and so you start to see them do better. They're more fit in the evolutionary, um, you know, in the evolutionary path that it's taking. So because viruses have statistics on their side, they make so many copies of each other, of, of themselves, and then they infect so many people. And COVID, that is certainly the case, um, you know, that's how we're able to see these variants develop. And um, Delta in particular is concerning because it looks like um, these mutations are letting the virus make a lot more copies of itself in a person. So it's looking like the way that Delta is more transmissible is because it actually produces a lot more virus. And it, um, so if there's more virus in somebody's nose, then there's more virus into the air and it's able to infect more people. So that's how we think that um, Delta is more transmissible than previous variants. You're anticipating all my questions here. <laughs> so I, next I was going to ask what makes the Delta variant special and how is it different from the original SARS-CoV-2 virus or other 
variants that we know about. Well, something that is um, that people should keep in mind is what doesn't make it special. So what doesn't make Delta special is that it is still, um, if you're vaccinated against uh, SARS-CoV-2, if you're vaccinated against it, you're vaccinated against Delta. And so um, anybody who's telling you that the vaccines don't work as well, um, you know, they're working pretty well. And and uh, and so it's really important for people if they haven't gotten vaccinated yet, it takes time to build immunity to go out and get that done ASAP. So is the Delta variant actually causing more se- severe disease than other variants? It's, it's really hard to answer that question. Um, I'm a scientist, so I like to boil things down to one variable at a time, you know, so you can study one thing. But that's almost never something you can do in public health because uh, things change all the time. People have different, they start doing more things um, now than they were a year ago. Um, there are more uh, older people, more vulnerable, vulnerable people who are vaccinated, so they're better protected. Um, people are, you know, behavior is is uh, something that's not not something people aren't doing the same things all the time. So it's really hard to say, but it does not look like it leads to more severe illness. And if it if it does, it's a very subtle effect. Um, we are seeing less hospitalizations and less deaths due to Delta because um, some of the most vulnerable people have already gotten vaccine. But um, we'll, we'll see how that shakes out because there are parts of the U.S. where vaccination is quite low and, um, and not all vulnerable people have had the opportunity or have taken the opportunity to, um, to get vaccinated. So the real danger with Delta is that it's more transmissible, which means, does that mean there is, uh, it takes less virus or fewer virus particles to infect somebody and potentially cause infection? Um, it's really hard to answer that question right now because um, you, at some point, if there is like a treatment for for COVID, then um, you could do these great studies where you can give somebody a certain amount of virus and then somebody else a different amount of virus and study that in the laboratory. Right now, you can't do that. So you can just look and see who is getting, who's turning positive, who's getting hospitalized. Um, so, but finding out that there's a lot more virus that's produced if somebody gets infected from Delta, that um, that kind of implies that maybe they're just, you know, spitting out more um, virus into the air when they're talking um, and they're breathing more virus out into the air. So it's that's probably how it's more transmissible. But, you know, it's hard to, to pinpoint exactly these sort of scientific details yet. You mentioned that our current vaccines are really effective against the Delta variant. Are they equally as effective? Are all the vaccines equally effective or does it seem like one is better than the others at this point? Well, the ones that we have in the U.S. are all very effective, but um, it looks like for the mRNA vaccines that it's important to have both doses. So, um, you know, you can't just have one dose here. If you've had one dose, um, even if it's been more than the allotted time that you were told to come back and get the second, um, that there's no time like the present. If people are worried about side effects from the vaccine, I mean, you know, more than half people do not have any side effects from the vaccine. So um, it's it's not it's not a guarantee that you're going to feel badly. I, for myself, I felt 
you know, little pain in my arm and, um, and I, I felt tired, but that's like kind of a, that's kind of a standard baseline sort of feeling for, for a lot of people. So, um, you know, just go ahead and, and take the, the opportunity. So if you are fully vaccinated, that is the two doses of, of the mRNA vaccine, how worried should you be about the Delta variant? You know, for instance, can vaccinated people spread the Delta variant? Should you be worried about going out to restaurants or in other public places and potentially spreading the Delta variant to others? Yeah, everybody has to do a little bit of their own risk calculation when it comes to these things because not everybody is able to be vaccinated. Um, You know, kids under 12 cannot be vaccinated yet. Um, And not everybody is going to have the same robust response to vaccine. So if you are a transplant patient or if you've had an autoimmune disease that your doctor has told you might affect your ability to respond to a vaccination, um, just getting the vaccine may not um, may not be enough. And there's there's a lot of talk right now of um, for some people who are immunocompromised um, to get a, a third dose um, so that uh, they can boost up their antibodies as much as they can. But just to take a step back, I mean, a lot of this is, um, you know, a lot of understanding can be gained from thinking about how vaccines work. Um, vaccines are like a training program for your immune system. They, they can't give you the disease, but it's like it just runs through the motions of if you were to be infected with this virus, what your body should do. And, and so it trains your immune system to respond to the real thing if that happens. Um, so when you've been vaccinated, you've got a head start on your immune system, and hopefully you don't have to use that training. But if you get exposed to the virus, your body is poised to like shut that down and stop the virus from making lots of copies of itself. But that means, um, you know, that if you can get your if you get exposed to the virus, your body is going to have to deal with that. Um, it doesn't look like people who are. Um, exposed after vaccine after they've gotten vaccinated that they go on to produce enough virus to give it to somebody else um, so so that's great news for people who are living with unvaccinated people um, like I am with my uh, my 11 year old who hasn't been vaccinated yet but um, so this is you know just something to keep in mind you know your activities you know, for most people they can't transmit the virus after a vaccine but um, but you know if you're living with somebody that's super high risk um, you might want to take some extra precautions. Well, that leads into my next question. You mentioned you're living with your 11 year old daughter and children ages 12 and under aren't yet eligible for the vaccine. So how vulnerable are younger children? Should parents of kids um, of this age be taking any special precautions right now? Right. Um, just need to correct the record. I have two boys. So um, so my one of them is vaccinated and the other is not. And um, because the other, one of them is uh, is 14. So he was able to get vaccinated. Um, are there any special precautions that people should take? Any um, it does. It looks like kids can um, kids can get covid just like adults um, and they tend to have um, many fewer symptoms um, and, and problems fighting off covid. But it's not a zero thing. If there were no cases in adults, if there were no cases that killed so many people in nursing homes, 
people would be pretty alarmed about how many cases there are in kids, especially with the long-term, um, you know, complex immune problems that they have for, that can linger for some months after. So, um, you know, deaths uh, in children are thankfully super rare, but it does happen. And if it weren't, um, if we were going by data from 2019, it would be a top 10 killer of kids. So, um, so people should, uh, should not, um, should resist any, any calls to like, oh, it's fine. Kids will, you know, kids will be okay. Um, wearing masks and so forth and doing all these things, being outside as much as possible. All these things are great ideas um, because, you know, if you can avoid um, getting infected, it's really, it's really the better, safer plan. A lot of people have, um, this kind of no pain, no gain approach to infectious diseases. And the reality is that like, you know, there isn't an infectious disease that's really a great idea to have, but um, COVID is is definitely one that we just don't know what it's gonna do to people 20, 30 years down the line. And I, that's what I, my big worry with kids. Um, so, so if you can avoid getting COVID, I don't want to scare people who've already had to deal with COVID, but, you know, if you can just avoid it, it's best to do so. So we're well into the summer now. As we look ahead to the fall, is there any concern about sending kids back to school this fall as the Delta variant spreads and with children, again, not being eligible yet for the vaccine? Yeah, so the CDC actually released their their guidance for schools. Um, there are a lot of things that people can do to reduce risks, and um, children, you know, give them credit for being uh, probably better rule followers than many adults. Um, so there are things that can be done. In addition, you know, to vaccine, um, if teachers can be vaccinated, if uh, if children who are of vaccinating age can be vaccinated, that's the best. Um, other things that should be done. Um, schools can use their flexible funds under the um, the the uh, the government's plan for this, the rescue plan, to purchase um, portable air filter uh, air filters. Um, so HEPA filtration of the air is a great way to reduce uh, the number of viruses that are in the air, and that will be great not only for COVID but for flu because um, we're going to start seeing other diseases pick up again. Um, masks are great. Keeping uh, keeping people distant is um, is is a good idea, but hard to do when you're stu- when you're in a room for all day. Um, but there are there are things that can be done, especially with the ventilation. Um, schools should be making sure that their HVAC systems are up up to par. But also, um, you know, the portable air filtration it's it's just a, an easy way to make sure that kids have healthy air. On the last episode of the podcast, I spoke with epidemiologist Jessica Malati Rivera about the issue of vaccine hesitancy. And we know that there are a lot of reasons why people still haven't gotten the vaccine yet. It's not necessarily because they're anti-vaccine. They might still have concerns about safety or they might think I'm young and healthy and don't need to get the vaccine. Given the risk that the Delta variant poses to unvaccinated people, how would you suggest approaching these people about getting the vaccine? Or how would you talk to someone who has not gotten the vaccine yet? 
Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I understand uh, that people have uh, questions, especially when it comes to their children um, and getting vaccine. But um, these vaccines are really incredibly safe. Um, the data is very strong that they're safe. Um, you're not first anymore. Um, this this vaccine has been in millions of people at this point, and um, including children, and um, and it will help to protect them against um, any lingering um, problems that the virus may cause. Um, that I especially worry about later in life. Um, so so I you know try and give information as I as I can. I I hope that um, more leaders stand up on different who have different political views um, and talk about how vaccine um, it can really be protective, and you know and uh, and can help uh, people get back to work more safely. It's not a matter of just you know just living and dying. I mean yes the vaccines um, will will protect people from dying. But, you know, people need to remember it's not fun being sick and it's not fun to have to miss sometimes weeks of work and all the problems that that caused. Um, I know there was a lot of talk early in the pandemic about comparing this to flu and whether or not it was more dangerous than the flu. And for somebody who's been a a, a flu vaccine advocate, it was kind of, it was just weird because, um, um, you know, I, I try really hard to convince people to get a flu shot and the flu shots aren't nearly as effective as the, as the COVID shots. But um, a, a long time ago now, 20 years ago, I got the flu and I ended up getting hospitalized for pneumonia. And I think, you know, I didn't die, um, obviously, but I, I had lingering problems for months. Um, and it was, you know, it was months before I could exercise in the same way that I could before then. And I was, you know, young. So it's, um, it's not something, it's just not fun to be sick. And if you can take a step to avoid it, um, especially since it's free and it's super available, then um, people should do that. I totally agree. Now, okay, we talked about the Delta variant. What about Delta Plus? What is this variant? What do we need to know about it at this point? So I think we're all going to be learning the entire Greek alphabet in its correct order um, by the time that this pandemic is uh, recedes because, um, you know, Delta Plus and then there'll be others. There's Lambda that's brewing and there's, you know, so there's other variants that are out there. Um, the big things to remember right now is that for all of the variants that we know about, the vaccines are protective. Um, that does. It's no guarantee that that will always be the case, but as of now, um, they are protective, and we're hoping, um, to, if you're optimistic, that you know that the vaccines are stimulating enough um, of people's immune response that the vaccine, uh, the virus, can't really escape that. So, um, so as of now, um, you know, all, the only thing that people need to know is that all these various mutations that the virus is undergoing, um, they, they don't make a bit of difference to people's practical levels. Like there's no reason you should be worried that if you get COVID, that you have one variant or another, um, just you know, seek treatment for the disease that you have. So of course we've talked about how the current vaccines are very effective against Delta and Delta Plus, but with variants that might emerge in the future, do you think we are going to need a booster shot at some point to combat these 
new variants? Well, so far, no. Um, The CDC and FDA put out a statement saying that we don't need a booster at this time. Um, And uh, even though um, some of the vaccine manufacturers would probably prefer that that be the recommendation because, you know, then they get to sell more vaccine. um, This is not something that people need to worry about at the moment. There is some debate over if you have um, if you have any immunocompromising, um, uh, any sort of immunocompromising condition, that maybe um, a third shot might be a good idea. But that's still being debated. Um, of course, if people are really concerned about it, there's no downside to getting um, a, a booster of the existing vaccine. You're going to mess up the epidemiology numbers um, because people think that you've just gotten one shot of your two. But um, but you know, people have to make the decision for themselves. At this point, should we be worried about an even more transmissible or more dangerous version of the virus emerging? And what is is there anything that could prevent that? What could possibly prevent that from happening? Well, the the thing that would prevent um, new variants from emerging, including ones that escape the vaccine, are to stop the transmission of the virus, Um, because every time the the virus infects somebody, it's an opportunity for mutations to develop. Um, And we so we um, we have to focus on that as a goal. And that's why it is not just a humanitarian um, effort to um, even though that's a worthy goal, of course, in its own right, it's not just a humanitarian effort to send vaccines to places that um, that need them, need them, because um, if the more, more we can stop the spread of disease, uh, the more uh, we have control over future variants em- emerging. There, um, there's a lot of hope that um, that the mutations that that we're seeing most of the worst that the virus can do um, at a certain point, the virus has to kind of color between the lines. And um, if it makes too many mutations, it won't be able to function um, and, and, you know, and replicate and, and do the things that the virus does. Um, we, I hope that's the case, but um, but biology is not a theoretical science. Um, you know, it's 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 based on evidence. So that's what we have to deal with right now. I wanted to talk about the issue of breakthrough infections. Why do breakthrough infections happen, and do they mean that the vaccines aren't working? So the way that the vaccines, I've explained that the way that the vaccines work, it's like a training program for your immune system. Um, it's like a dress rehearsal. Every, all your cells know what to do when the, the real production happens. Um, but that's exactly why they sometimes, why you sometimes see some breakthrough infections. Um, if I'm, I'm vaccinated, if I get exposed and I, um, the virus infects me, um, my body's going to fight it off. Would it be um, how well that happens is not just a function of the vaccine. It's a, the function of my ability to fight it off and you know the response that I had to the vaccine. So, um, so not everybody is going to get the same robust response to the vaccine. Um, or maybe you know maybe you were exposed to a lot of the virus to begin with, and your body's having a harder time fighting it off for whatever reason. Um, breakthrough infections are are going. We're going to see them, um, but you know you have to think that it would be much worse if you didn't have this head start for your immune system to be able to fight off the virus. So. 
Uh, for most people, um, having a breakthrough infection is an indicator that you might not have done so well if you had had the real without the vaccine. Wow. That is, I think, certainly something to think about if you're if you're not vaccinated yet. So is the Delta variant causing more breakthrough infections? Do we know that yet? Um, is it because, you know, we did talk about already how the vaccines are very effective, but is this variant, because it's more transmissible, causing more of these breakthrough cases? Um, we are seeing a slight uptick, but it's not, um, it's not, I don't think the data is totally in yet on whether or not it is causing um, a ton more breakthrough infections. But um, you will have to see where the evidence takes us. But it, even if it does, um, it's still, you know, it's still, it's, it's even more of a good reason to, to get vaccine. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about another topic that's been in the news a lot lately. And that's the theory that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, possibly originated in a lab. Um, is there any evidence to support this theory? Yeah, it's certainly been um, well. I mean, there have been there are lots of permutations to this theory. So in the early days, um, there were a lot of claims that maybe this could be a biological weapon. It was designed. I think those have been pretty solidly put to rest because um, uh, it's for a lot of uh, scientific reasons. Um, this looks like a very natural um, emergence of a virus. Um, but then people said, well, what if it emerged naturally or was found in a bat, but then it was worked on in the laboratory and, and then it leaked out somehow. Um, you know, you can't totally rule that out, but there's uh, there are a lot of pieces of evidence on the other side of the equation, which is that, um, uh, that it probably came from a bat and spilled over into some other animal, likely um, this kind of cute, pudgy, uh, looking um, animal called a raccoon dog. Um, and it, from there, um, spilled over multiple times to people in animal, in these wild animal markets. Um, for a while, it wasn't clear that, um, that these animals were present at the markets that were originally um, the focus of some, many of the early cases of SARS-CoV-2. Um, but now it's pretty, we had, there's a lot of photographic evidence that, um, that lots of animals that were illegal um, were being sold uh, and butchered at these animal markets. And, um, and so there's that. A lot of the early clusters were quite far away from the laboratory in question. There was um, probably multiple spillover events um, the, because there are different uh, mutations in the virus from uh, that were very early in the cases um, that are were associated with the different markets. So uh, there's a there's a longer list of of, um, of things that are happening or being discovered now that point to you know the same old story, the same story that we saw in SARS, um, you know, 20 years ago. But um, you know there there have been um, things that China has done that have um, made people think, oh, well, they're acting suspiciously. Um, you know, they closed the markets almost immediately after cases came down, uh, started popping up and cleaned them. So that it really obscured the effort to find an animal that was infected. 
Um, there are misleading statements and, and whatnot. But I think people need to be aware that um, these two things can be true. Um, China can act like they normally do, which is not always in the best interest of, of transparency. Um, and also um, animals, you know, the whole animal people interface um, is a source of epidemics and pandemics. And I worry that the focus on the, the lab leak and this very accusatory rhetoric will prevent us from actually finding the animal that probably um, was the in-between stage between bats and people. And um, that we may see this again if there's any seasonal element to it, you know, come this uh, this November. Um, and it'll also, uh, you know, make it harder for us to solve some of the big challenges we have with uh, vaccinating the world. Um, if we're going to have to, um, we need to, we need China's help to do that. And we also um, will need their help to clean up this whole problem with the wild animal markets. And uh, because this is going to keep happening as more people get closer to where these viruses are brewing. And I know there's also been a lot of suspicion around China, particularly Wuhan, because there is a lab that studies coronaviruses in Wuhan. And, uh, you know, I think John Stewart even uh, had a bit where he said, you know, come on, this can't be a coincidence. But at the same time, you mentioned SARS-1, the original SARS virus, and then there was MERS, of course, and now SARS-CoV-2. And we have known for a while that there are hundreds of coronaviruses circulating in bats and other animals. So it seems like we were, you know, kind of due for another coronavirus outbreak, unfortunately. Um, so what would what would you say, I guess, to, to those people who say, oh, well, there there's a coronavirus lab in, in Wuhan. It can't be a coincidence. Yeah, I I mean, it looks, well, I mean, that's what we need to keep pushing on the science element, even though it's hard now um, that we don't have those samples uh, from the market. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really important that we figure this out, um, especially because it will keep happening again. And the, and I think, um, you know, this whole problem with, uh, with people eating, um, you know, uh, wild animals that are not that are not free of disease. Um, that whole issue is uh, it's not just China. There are other parts of the world where this can can happen, and we need to tackle this. I mean, we need to get better at um, preventing spillovers. And I mean, it is true that there is a, a Institute of Virology in Wuhan. Um, it's a city of eleven million people. Um, there's a there's a lot of things in in Wuhan, but. Uh, the original SARS uh, virus also traveled um, and started a thousand miles away from a populated center where it then kind of took off. So I think the science is pointing to Wuhan being a an amplification event of the virus. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is this is uh, we'll just have to keep pushing this. And I know that a lot of people uh can't um, get over that 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 is a coincidence. But I mean, you have to keep an open mind. And I think the evidence is showing that it is really a coincidence. Also, that they were right to study coronaviruses because um, because they are uh, going to be a more frequent problem. 
So in your view, what is the most compelling evidence that we have against the lab leak theory? Um, I think it's a confluence of evidence. Um, so I think the the whole, um, the early cases being of, um, connected to the animal markets, um, to the, to the, to the food markets. I think those are, that's the biggest, uh, you know, kind of, this is the way things typically arise. Um, and, uh, so having those cases there, a lot of people have, um, placed emphasis on the fact that not all of the cases, early cases had a connection to the market, but with our understanding now that SARS-CoV-2 is occasionally asymptomatic, um, that makes a little bit more sense. And so we need to keep pushing, finding more samples of early people, people who are early afflicted and, um, see where we can, uh, find the timeline and uh, see where the we can push the geography because um, because there is more evidence out there um, for sure that we can we can work on but the rhetoric without evidence is not is not helpful I've heard that it's difficult to pinpoint the origin of a virus and particularly you know as we're talking about this it, it seems like it with this virus especially it's difficult because of the way uh, China has been dealing with this. When do you think we'll know the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and, and why is it so hard to pin down where this virus came from? Yeah, it typically takes a long time. And even then, it, it, it's sort of presumptive um, because there isn't the effort and money spent and totally running it to ground. Um, for Ebola, we we kind of I mean we we think it's from, from bats, but um, but you know it's that that link has never really that actual you know how things happen. Why do we have Ebola outbreaks um, that hasn't been established, and it and it's not usually established even for flus um, beyond you know it came from a bird or it came from uh, from swine. You know, it's not usually like localized to a particular province or town. Um, so, I mean, this is this is the way things go. I think we'll we'll get better in the future of, of picturing this. But um, you know, you don't have a you can't go back to the way back machine and look for the time that the the bat you know left the the forest and and uh, and its droppings ended up, you know, and some food that somebody ate. I mean, it's not that the if people have seen contagion, um, that last scene that you don't, you don't get that in real life. Um, but it's also true that, um, things aren't always as transparent as you would like them to be. Um, I was joking early on that um, like a bat could have, um, wandered out wearing a name tag saying, I'm going to cause a pandemic, um, you know, posted pics on Insta and then like, we'd still, you know, try to behave in the same way, you know, even if there was all the evidence in the world, they kind of have, there's, there's an internal logic that people need to think about. Um, and so China experts and people who are used to seeing how China operates and other things, um, really need to be heavily consulted here. But, um, yeah, it's, it's gonna, this is going to be an ongoing debate for some time. Why do you think the lab leak theory has gained so much traction on social media and even in the mass media? I think it's very easy to wrap your head around. Um, and the evidence on the other side is very technical and uh, challenging to read. 
but um, you know, there's lots of people have lots of agendas. So I mean, you know, there's there's that. Um, I think that's the most charitable way of looking at it. But there's a lot of people who are um, wanting to push their their well their careers um, or their anti-China rhetoric. They have another objective. Um, there's another contingent of people who are concerned about um, a particular. Uh, some some research governance and um, and they're very much anti uh, gain of function research, which is a maybe a topic for for another time. But it um, they are saying, well, maybe the virus was um, manipulated in the in the lab um, using gain of function to to become SARS CoV two, and it's like. You know, gain of function can be a powerful set of techniques to work on in the lab, but it's not a magic wand. And um, and so some of the claims that people are putting on um, laboratory manipulation, well, it's just, you know, we're not there yet. Um, biology is powerful. We're all in amazement at the, at the mRNA vaccines. It's, you know, there are lots of amazing things that are going to happen, but Biologists, you know, we're, we're, we're still learning here um, and, and being able to create entirely new uh, viruses is um, it's not something that we're concerned about. A couple of years ago, I was on a National Academies um, committee uh, looking at synthetic biology and powerful new biological techniques. And what does that mean for biodefense? And our top line um, thing that we were most concerned about was um, nations or individuals recreating known pathogens, especially small viruses, because it's like the code, we know the code works. So if somebody were to make smallpox in the laboratory, they would know exactly how it would function in the real world and how much damage it could cause. Creating entirely novel new things, you know, like, like SARS-CoV-2 would be really challenging and beyond the capabilities of uh, state actors. I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for an incredibly interesting discussion, Dr. Granville, and thanks to everyone for listening. If you like this show, you can follow Making Sense of Science to hear new episodes coming once a month. If you want to give us feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch through our website, leaps.org, and follow us on Instagram at Making Sense of Science. Stay safe out there and catch you next time. <laughs>